The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. The scripture today is from Habakkuk, chapter 3. If you do not own a Bible um, or have one with you, please feel free to take one as my Christmas gift to you. Actually, that would be a gift from Park Church. No kidding. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one with you, and you will find that on page 738 if you're using one of the Bibles from the pew back in front of you. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigenat. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Tuman and the Holy Mount and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your, sea, the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning to all of you. Um, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're so excited that you all have joined us uh, today. Uh, if you missed last week, you'll know that we are in week two of Advent, which is part of the Christian calendar. It's the first season in the season of, of um, the Christian year that we work our way through the story of Jesus and the story of the church. And as Neil mentioned last week, Advent, Advent isn't some just prelude or warm up for Christmas. It really is um, a celebration that Christ will return, that he came as a little child in Bethlehem and he will return again in glory. This word for Advent comes from the Latin for Adventus, which means coming, arrival. And that's what we long for. That's what we wait for. And it's it's in this season that we find these themes and practices of waiting, of longing, of anticipating uh, Christ's return, and also that he would make all things new, as we sang this morning. And it's also an opportunity for us to be uh, honest about how broken and dark the world is. In her book, Advent, uh, Tish Harrison Warren said this, we begin our Christian year in waiting. We do not begin with our own frenetic effort or energy. We do not begin with the merriment of Christmas or the triumph of Easter. We do not begin with the work of the church or the mandate of the Great Commission. Instead, we begin in a place of yearning. We wait for our King to come. So I want to encourage all of you to enter into this season of waiting, of longing, of expectation. Uh, Allow Advent to have its way with you uh, in your heart right now. Uh, Don't be too quick to run on to the merriments of Christmas. Um, An easy way to do that is join us on Wednesdays for prayer from 12 to 12.45. We're inviting people to fast if they can from food and join us to pray. Uh, We had a great time this last week. We have two more during the season of Advent. So join us for that as well. Uh, we also have a couple book, uh, books on Advent resources for you, so it's not too late. If you said this ship has already sailed, it hasn't sailed yet, join in Advent uh, today. Um, today I'm preaching the second of four sermons uh, throughout the season of Advent called Aching for Advent. Aching for Advent. So we're going to be looking at these themes of aching and hope that we find in the minor, minor prophets, which are also called the Book of the Twelve. Um, So last week, Neil preached on the world's aching and longing for justice in in the book of Amos. And then today, this week, we're going to look at at our ache for freedom uh, in the ever-popular book of Habakkuk, a true bestseller. Um, And so we ache for freedom, right, in ourselves. We ache for freedom for those around us, for our friends and our family, and ultimately for the world at large. And before we dive into this passage, uh, I'd love to pray for us.
And Father, would you, would you help us right now to, to learn everything we need to learn? Uh, to, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our ears to hear? Would you open our hearts to receive? Would each of our hearts be fertile ground for whatever you want to plant in the soils of our hearts today? Um, yeah, incline our hearts towards your word. Um, and we ask that you would do a work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I say the word freedom, what comes to mind for you? Freedom, right? When I ask you what you think of when you think of freedom, what do you first think of? What does it mean for each of us to be truly free? Uh, if you look up the word in the dictionary, you'll see it defined in a couple Ways, uh, the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. The state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Um, we live in America, do we not? Uh, the land of the free. But ironically, as I look around, the truth is that we appear free on the outside, and yet so many of us are bound in patterns of sin, of bad habits, held hostage by other people's opinions of us, or what other people are doing on Instagram, and we're a jumbled mess of anxiety, depression, and unfulfilled desires. Uh, we might have the right to act, speak, or think without restraint, but in practical ways, we are by no means free. I felt this and feel this reality in how I parent every day in my marriage, uh, in my relationships. At times, I feel enslaved by my phone and by technology. Um, the Bible has plenty to speak to us about freedom. Uh, it tells us that we are created by God in the garden for freedom and to live and thrive in that freedom under the care and authority of God. And so it wasn't freedom without restraint. It was this freedom under the care, the good and loving care of God himself. No sin, no shame, in perfect relationship with God and each other and with creation. And yet suddenly, unbeknownst to us, the serpent came onto the scene in Genesis 3, pitching a counterfeit and sham freedom. It says, break free from this restraint that God has put over you. And we believed this lie that we were sold, hook, line, and sinker. And it's this twofold lie. God doesn't want our best. And two, we can determine our own fate and we can determine our own freedom without God, not being under his Authority. Distrust God and anyone else who might have authority in our lives and trust yourself. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like the version of freedom that you've been sold? Humanity has bought into this lie ever since. Without even knowing the poem, we live out of the words of William Ernest Henley in his poem Invictus. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or so we choose to believe. And so ever since that first day of supposed freedom that Adam and Eve found apart from God in the garden, ironically, it hasn't been a journey towards freedom. It's been a journey away from it. Sin has distorted our understanding of freedom in massive ways. Martin Luther describes sin as being inwardly curved towards oneself. It's like perpetual narcissistic navel gazing, always looking at ourselves. And this is what sin does to us. It doesn't open us up to like stretch out and move around in more freedom. Sin actually binds us. And that's what sin does. 
We were promised keys that would liberate us, but have found ourselves bound by cold shackles that dehumanize us and make us less than all God had intended. There's no way to do justice to the story of the Bible about freedom, but ultimately God continued to pursue and chase his people down in a culmination of years and plans and prayers. God sent his own son, Jesus, who came as the freest person on the planet. As the first Adam should have, he lived under the authority of this God, and yet he was free. He was free. And he set out on a mission to set us free that we might be restored to God's original purpose in the garden. He came to free us from the real problem, which was sin that separated us from God and was curving us inwardly and from all these sinful sinful patterns that we've lived out of. And so how did he do this? He laid down his life. He was bound to a cross, paying the price for our sin and sending his Holy Spirit that today we might walk in his ways and live in the freedom that he has purchased for us. And one day he will come again in glory, fully and finally, to put sin and death in the grave, along with all of our sinful patterns. And that's the reality that we're celebrating in Adam. That's, a, that's the thing that we are longing for, that we would find this sort of freedom. But I have a question. What do we do until that final day? When we don't see the freedom in ourselves, when we don't see the freedom in our society around us in the ways that we wished we would, in our friends, in our workplaces. This finally brings us to the book of Habakkuk. I loved uh, Neil's LinkedIn graphic for Amos last week, so we had one uh, created for Habakkuk. Uh, So here we are, Habakkuk. He is the lover of Yahweh. He was a temple musician and prophet, or so they think. Uh, He lived in Judah, the southern kingdom, and he talks about hashtag lament, violence, idolatry, judgment, listening to God, prayer, and singing. And so this is Habakkuk. We don't know a ton about him. Uh, It's almost like he was a combo. If you could put together David and Elijah, you'd probably find Habakkuk. This book was most likely written between 605 BC and 597 BC. Um, If you're thinking on the timeline of all these other prophets, uh, Habakkuk lived at the same time as Jeremiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah. He was living in Judah, which is part of the southern kingdom. And uh, this book is only three chapters long. It's not a very long one. But as I study this book, it's interesting to know that one thing sets this book apart from every other prophetic book. And it's this, that most other prophetic books are statements made by God through prophets to the people of God. And yet this prophetic book is actually a prayer journal of sorts that captures and documents Habakkuk's engagement with God. So it's not some statement made by some fire-breathing prophet saying, repent, people of God. This is Habakkuk, in a sense, just crying out to God in his closet, saying, God, would you move? How long, O Lord? And we'll get into this. And yet, and then we see God responding, and then, and then Habakkuk saying, are you really sure, God? And then God responding again. And then in, in turn, chapter 3, is Habakkuk responding to God and praying this beautiful prayer that we read through the, the entirety today? Habakkuk wrestles with God over the state of Judah. He's looking around at what he sees in Judah, and he's not impressed. Far from that, he's disturbed to his core. He sees how broken and corrupt the nation was, both in its people, but also in its leadership, rampant violence, idol worship, a general numbness to the law of God. 
and a broad unraveling of the whole of their society. And so Habakkuk begs for God to come and do something. In one sense, just like us today, Judah was incredibly free. They were doing what they wanted to do, were they not? And just like us, Judah was also deeply bound. They were curved in on themselves. What do we do when we're confronted with this kind of captivity, not just out there, but also in here, in our hearts, in those around us? And I think Habakkuk's journey that he takes through this whole book is actually very beautiful, helpful, and instructive for us today. And so for the rest of the time, I'm going to walk through the whole of Habakkuk, um, and I'm going to zero in mainly on the final chapter. And so we're not going to go word by word or line by line. We're really going to take a few um, kind of like over, overarching like kind of photos or snapshots of different parts of the book. What can we take away? And what does Habakkuk have to speak to us today in Advent 2023? And so in the spirit of Christmas season that is coming, I want to say this. Habakkuk offers us four gifts. Habakkuk offers and lays before us four gifts to help us engage with this ache that we have for freedom and move toward it even more. And so the first gift that Habakkuk offers us is the gift of lament. The gift of lament. In chapters one and two, he offers us lament. This first point comes uh, from these two chapters. And uh, so if you want to go read over it later, by all means, do it. Um, the reason I'm sharing this is, is because I think it's an important first step, this, this lamenting, and I'll, I'll get into what that means, but it's, a, it's an important foundation to build on from which the other gifts flow from. What is lament? Lament involves both naming and grieving in the presence of God. Lament involves both naming and grieving in the presence of God. If you, if you can, look back to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 with me. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, and it says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And will you not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly uh, and why do you idly, uh, you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so he's, he's lamenting this reality, what he sees around him, but uh, Habakkuk, it almost seems as if, he, as if he's gone to the school of the Psalter. Similar to what we've seen in the Psalms, God invites us to bring everything in our hearts before him, not just the colorful, not just the happy uh, thoughts. It doesn't need to be pretty. It doesn't need to be polished. This reality is true in our spirituality. We can let our guards down before God. We can be honest. I have a hard time with this personally. I'm like, whatever, the, the, the realities are there and I can't change things. And so what does my sadness help, right? What does my anger help? It won't help me at all. And yet Advent and lament are teaching us an important parts, part of our hearts. In this book, Why Emotions Matter, uh, the authors compare our emotions to stage curtains that open together and close together. So, you know, as, as the curtains open on the stage, you don't just get one side opening, but both sides open together. And typically with my emotions, I want one side of the stage to open, let the, all the pretty, nice, colorful, flowery emotions show, but not these dark ones, not the dark ones that I feel, right? And yet lament is a reminder that we must allow the curtains to open up on both sides of the stage. If you try to constrain one side, the low side, the highs will be, will be tempered and held back as well. And so that we need to allow ourselves to feel the whole gamut. And lament is an invitation 
to do that. We must learn to feel both the highs and the lows. And I think that's very important. I don't know if you struggle with that or not, but in these first two chapters, Habakkuk grieves both the sin of God's people as well as the sin of Babylon. So in chapter one, Habakkuk is like, God, like, what is going on in Judah? This place is in a rough, rough place. Will you step in? Will you intervene? And then God's like, actually, Habakkuk, I'm raising up Babylon to come in and bring judgment upon Israel. And then chapter two is like, Habakkuk is like, are you serious, God? Like, that's a terrible plan. Like, have you seen how sinful they're? They're like worse than us. Why would you bring bringing Babylon to judge us? Their sins are way worse than ours as well. And then God's like, actually, I'm gonna end up bringing judgment on them as well after the fact. I'm doing something in your day that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. And so then uh, chapter three is finally like Habakkuk taking a step back and he begins to pray and he works through the rest of it that we'll walk through um, in the rest of our time together. But this, but this second um, but this, this um, chapters one and two are really about Habakkuk grieving these realities. In the early 1900s, there's a story about um, British author and apologist G.K. Chesterton. And uh, the Times of London posed a question to many prominent authors, and they asked this question to these authors, and they said, what's wrong with the world today? That was the, the question they gave out. And they invited responses back from these prominent authors and, uh, and I'm sure many of you have heard this story, and I loved G.K. Chesterton's um, four-word response but to, this, to this question, what's wrong with the world today? He said this, dear sir, I am. So what's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. Similar to what we do in Advent, we must learn to name, to grieve, and lament captivity and brokenness as we see it. And we need to learn to echo G.K.'s, uh, GK's statement, right, that says that I am part of the problem. I'm part of this problem. We are part of the problem. The church isn't immune from brokenness. It isn't immune from sin. It isn't immune from destructive leadership. We are called to grieve it, not ignore it, not whitewash it. There's something powerful about naming and grieving. And I think in in, in a large part, lament is a lost art. It's a lost language that we need to learn to speak again. I think the Psalms and Habakkuk help us in that process. This is why we confess our sins weekly. It's why we try to lament as a church as we see brokenness in Denver, in the U.S., in the world. We try to lament as a church and grieve these things. And just consider for a moment, when was the last time that you have lamented, that you've felt a deep grief over something in your life or around you before God? When was the last time you had a good cry over the state of something that you're grieving I want to invite you to learn the goodness of grieving before God. Uh, We light candles in dark rooms for a reason. And lament is simply naming that darkness in the presence of the light. Lament is naming the presence of darkness in the presence of the light himself. And so that's the first gift that we're given is the gift of lament. The next gift that Habakkuk gives us is the gift of prayer. So we can turn to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shigianoth. We'll get to that word later. It's a great word, by the way. Um, uh, Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. 
This is a prayer of Habakkuk. As Habakkuk interacts with God in the first two chapters, God tells him that he's going to do something he wouldn't believe, right? This doesn't lead Habakkuk to passivity. After hearing the plans of God, Habakkuk's like not, not like throwing up his hands saying, whatever, I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing now. He is led to prayer. I want to ask you a question. When we see a gap between what we've heard of God in the past and what we're seeing in the present, what do we do? Many of us get like the prayer wind knocked out of us and we ask questions like, does it even matter? Do my prayers even matter? Are you even listening to me? I've walked this through, through, through this multiple times in my life. Habakkuk refuses to give in to despair or apathy or stop merely at lament. He takes the next necessary step and he prays, God, I'm looking at your resume and I'm seeing my present reality and I don't think the two line up. Would you do something? I've heard about what you've done in the past, but it doesn't look like you are today. Would you do something? I love this language. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of where I am, would you revive it? This word for revive literally means to quicken. God, would you speed it up? Would you accelerate what it is, whatever it is that you have planned? In short, hurry up. I'm waiting for you to do the things that you've promised to do. Notice what's fueling Habakkuk's prayer. It's not his own zeal. It's not his own agenda, but rather it's God's name. It's God's attributes. He calls God by his covenant name, Yahweh, the all caps Lord. He asks the merciful God to remember mercy. God, be who you are. You say you're merciful. Will you remember mercy? In your judgment, remember mercy. He's checking the records, and he's saying, God, these aren't lining up. Show yourself to be who you've said that you are. Where are you at in your prayer life? Have you given up? Maybe God is inviting you to wake up to who he is again today. Uh, Often, if my prayer life feels shriveled up, it feels dry, Often it's time to try to look at and gaze at God again, saying, God, give me eyes that see you. With, with, with eyes of faith, let me look upon you again. Let me behold you. Let me gaze at you. Fill me with faith again for who you are and what you're doing. How do we do this? I think Habakkuk does it actually in real time in this next section of verses, uh, which leads us to the next gift. He gives us the gift of remembrance. The gift of remembrance. This is verses 3 through 16. And so Habakkuk begins a series of very vivid poetic remembrances in verses 3 through 16. He remembers and he actively rehearses this God who not only creates a beautiful world, but also wars on behalf of his people. And it's kind of a terrifying passage, is it not? When our stories are so crazy that we're encouraged to give up, what do we do? Well, Habakkuk uses what's called a theophany, which is really like a visible manifestation of God. We see elsewhere in scripture, other authors implement this. So Psalm 18, we see God coming down from his heavens and it's all this, this intense language. This is theophany language that they are using. It's terrifying poetry. In this theophany, God is described really as what's we can see to be like a creator warrior. He's the one who has control over nature, and he's the one who wars on behalf of his people. He comes up from the south. He utilizes the very imagery of the ways that God had acted in the Exodus, and he's asking for God to ultimately do it again as he led them into the promised land, out of bondage into victory 
and into freedom. Why is remembrance so important? Why is it so important? If you know anything about the people of God, and if you look around today in the church, we all tends, tend towards spiritual forgetfulness. We tend towards spiritual forgetfulness. Paul David Tripp calls this gospel amnesia. We're a bunch of amnesiacs running around who've lost the script and forgetting who we are, what story we're actually a part of. So how do we fight this sort of forgetfulness and amnesia? By remembering the truth, by rehearsing the truth, by practicing the truth, by inhabiting a different story through intentional practices. And so in a sense, Habakkuk is reattaching himself to the original story of God. He's looking at Judah and he's saying, I'm looking at this story and it looks like you're totally out of the picture and we're on our own. And Habakkuk is intentionally saying, God, you are over this time right now. You have fought for your people and you're fighting for us even now. He recounts the ways that God has warred on behalf of his people. And it's almost a poetic reenactment of verse two, rehearsing the report of God and his work. I love this quote from Kevin Twitt. He talks about remembrance and the role of worship in this and what they do for us practically. So let's read this. When we come together in worship, it is to have our sanity restored. It is about the restoring of what God says is true about life rather than being squeezed by the message our culture preaches. Worship is about restoring our sanity because we so often live in any sort of insanity. When we believe that we earn God's favor by what we do, when we believe we can manipulate God to do whatever we want, we are not living in line with reality. That is living in a fantasy world. The world we actually live in is the world in which God loves us because of his great mercy in Christ. Yet we rarely live like that. Worship is about opening our eyes to see Jesus for who he is, as beautiful and believable. This is what changes us. Worship is formative. It molds us and shapes us as the people of God. We gather to remember and have our sanity restored. Remembering the story of God restores our sanity and situates us again and orients us toward the true freedom that we're looking for and not the one that Denver or our culture is peddling. It's a battle to remember, is it not? Now, the word remember is very instructive for us. To remember something is to reattach it, to reconnect it, to bring it front and center again and again and again. If this story is meant to be the meta story through which we live our lives and it guides our steps, the question is how do we detach from competing stories and reattach to this singular capital S story? How We're like busy connecting ourselves saying, oh, you know what? I think this is going to bring me happiness. I think this is going to bring me true freedom. I think this is going to do this. And God is saying, unplug, unplug, and reattach yourself to this one true guiding principle, this true north, and that's me and my story. And that's what God would say to us. We must learn to take up practices of remembrance. How do we do this? Well, we can start by reading the Bible, reading the story that we're in, actually talk to, the, to God about the things that we see in it, and we try to seek to practice the presence of God as we live our days, and we go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and all these other spaces. God is 
with us. We live as little Christ wherever we go. And that's part of the story of where we are. And we are the most free as we live filled by his spirit, doing the things that Jesus would have done if he was in our exact story. That's true freedom. We engage weekly in our Sunday services, in our gospel communities, fighting to remember what Jesus has done. We seek to remember the story of Jesus through the Christian calendar. This is not a comprehensive list, but it's a starting point. The point of these practices isn't to check something off of a list, but rather we want to live our lives awake and not live half asleep. Advent practices are meant to be these alarm clocks that set off noises that keep us sharp and sober and alert and wakeful because we are gospel amnesiacs. Remember. All right, fourth and final gift. The gift of song, verses 17 through 19. Uh, In many ways, uh, this final gift is tied to the second and third gifts of prayer and remembrance. It's all about singing. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk opens up with this line that we read uh, before, according to the Shigianoth, right? And then closes with this line, to the choir master with stringed instruments. I think as I've read through and studied Shigianoth, it refers either to a particular instrument or a type of psalm. Uh, You see this in Psalm 7. It's in the superscript there as well. Uh, Not only that, but it's written to the choir master and to be accompanied by stringed instruments, right? How many of you guys, when you're writing in your prayer journal, you're like, to the choir master, you know, you know, to be sung with stringed instruments. It'd be awesome, right? This whole thing is a musical. It's prayer put to melody. It's an invitation to sing and pray and feel deeply. Songs are prayers wrapped in melodies. As we sing together on Sundays, we're praying together. An ancient proverb that seems to be incorrectly attributed to Augustine says this, he who sings prays twice. He who sings prays twice. If you struggle with prayer, try singing. If you don't know what singing is, I want to read this quote. It's very helpful. Singing is just like talking, except it's louder, longer, and you move your voice up and down. (laughs) So uh, take your cues from Buddy. Um, In a more serious uh, note uh, in his book, Seeing How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church, Keith Getty says this, God designed our psyche for singing. When singing praise to God, so much more than just the vocal box is engaged. God has created our minds to judge pitch and lyric, to think through the concepts we sing, to engage the intellect, imagination, and memory, and to remember what is set to a tune. God has formed our hearts to be moved with the depth of feeling and a whole range of emotion as the melody carried truths of who God is and whose we are sink in. Isn't that a great line? That God designed our psyche for singing. That the singing God put a song in our hearts. And it's one of the ways that we pray. What's the content of the song that Habakkuk has written? In this case, it's a song about being content in God, even when things aren't going our way. Let's read these last verses here. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Pause right there real quick. 
I mean, that's kind of an all-inclusive list, is it not? Think about what Habakkuk has just listed off. He lists off all of the sources of food available at the time. Uh, fig trees, grapevines, olive trees, things grow, growing in fields, flocks, herds. It's pretty comprehensive. If everything is cut off, if I have no sources of food in my life, Habakkuk tells us what? We might say, I'm going to lay down and die because life has been cut off. And that's not where Habakkuk goes. Keep reading. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What a wild thing that Habakkuk could be sitting in this place of one whose country is about to be invaded by another country, and yet he's saying, God, you are my strength. You make my feet like the feet of a deer. Everything might be cut off from me, but I am a content person. I am a, really a free person. I am surrendered to you and to your ways. I'm under your care and your authority, and I sing to you. Singing was part of this journey for Habakkuk, and it's part of our journey as well. Sometimes we sing because Jesus has set us free and we're very aware of it. Other times we sing because we're still bound up, but we know God's not done with us. He is on the move. I got to go to uh, the Czech Republic a few years ago with a few friends from Park, and uh, we, we got to visit some, some folks that are planting churches over there. And uh, during our visit, we, we were able to walk around Prague. And it's a beautiful city, but I don't think I realized how intense um, communism and, and its rule had played out in the city of Prague. And so we're walking around and talking, saying, what was life like that? And they're like, yeah, if you couldn't put flowers up in your windows. Um, here's, here are all these things and how our city was impacted. And yet, if you know anything about that, you know about the, the um, Velvet Revolution, right? And, and basically, they're over, they able to overthrow the communist government in a nonviolent way with, with lasting power. And so when the, the, the president and poet, uh, Vaclav Havel, was asked how he was able to do this, overthrow communism, um, he said this, and I think it's very instructive for us. We had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and sang our songs and read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Uh, friends, uh, if you look around, this is our parallel society. Uh, we gather here every week to sing our songs and read the scriptures and build our lives around them until we know the truth so well that we can step back into our neighborhoods, back into our workplaces, into the streets of Denver and say, we don't believe your lies anymore. Jesus is king and he is coming again. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that it is for freedom that you've set us free. Uh, we thank you that you are the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. And we thank you that you've intended for us to know the truth and that the truth would set us free. And so we ask that you would set 
us free today in any ways that we're bound that you know, God. But would, in, in the midst of the years, would you revive it in us? Would you do something in our hearts today? God, we thank you for a coming day of freedom, but we long for tastes of that freedom right now. And so in whatever ways we are bound, God, we ask for your freedom to rush in and meet us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Just before we take communion together, I want to encourage you with a couple reflections and just ways you might want to interact with God. But uh, if it's helpful to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. But what are some places in your own life where you might feel bound today, where you definitely feel unfree? Where do you feel captive today? Maybe it's someone around you. What might it look like to bring these things into God's presence today? Maybe this next week, to take a day to lament this reality, to grieve it before God. What would it look like to have your prayers rekindled about this topic and asking God to bring you or someone else freedom again? What would it look like for you to intentionally remember the story and power of Jesus available to you right now by the Spirit? And what would it look like to worship and sing to him in the middle of this unresolved tension today? As we were praying uh, for the service earlier and listening, uh, someone had a picture of, of these kids in a, in a prison camp um, and these these kids had kind of almost like normalized the reality that they were in prison. And what they failed to, to see was that the door actually to the prison was open. They were kind of just sitting there playing and comfortable doing their thing, right? And they've kind of made it work, but they're still bound up even though the door is open. And I don't know if that's an invitation for us today, for those of you who maybe have felt trapped in these patterns. And God might be saying, today is the day of freedom. That I want, I want to invite you to step outside of that today, today. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.